You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello and welcome back to the Macrodose podcast with me, James Meadway. We're off for our Christmas break this week, but we'll be back with our regular roundup show at the usual time next week. For the time being, here's an excerpt from the second episode of Macrodose Extra, our bonus Patreon series that takes us in-depth with some of the leading voices from the world of economics. Our guest today is Sarah Jaffe. Sarah is a US-based labour journalist and author of two wonderful books, Work Won't Love You Back, published last year, and Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt from 2016. She's also a co-host of Dissent Magazine's Belaboured podcast, as well as a columnist at the US media outlet, The Progressive. Sarah has been a leading voice on the ground covering the politics of work and industrial action from the workplace to the streets for a number of years now. I wanted to get her on this podcast to discuss the wave of strikes we've seen this year, uh, from nurses, rail workers and posties here in the UK, to teachers, Amazon workers and Starbucks employees over in the US. I began by asking her about a recent piece she wrote for The Progressive, entitled, Can the US Labour Movement Rise Again? What's new about the latest wave of labour action, and why is it happening now? Yeah, so what's happening in the US is not dissimilar to what's happening in Britain, right? Is that we're seeing that the pandemic was sort of the latest ratcheting up of the the boiling water that the frogs, i.e. all of us, have been in for the last four decades. And moments like this, where it suddenly becomes clear that working conditions are becoming much more shit for most people um, rather rapidly, trigger some reactions. And one of the things that's happened because of the pandemic, a thing that you've talked about on this podcast, right, is that like the profits that a lot of the companies that provided the so-called essential work that all of us relied on to not die, um, those companies are making massive, massive profits right now. And the workers know it, right? The workers are not stupid. They know that like Kroger, which is a grocery store chain, its profits are up somewhere between 10 and 20, 30, whatever percent. Um, They know that the companies are doing really well and they know that there's money to go around. And so we're seeing a drive towards unionization in places that weren't unionized and we're seeing strikes and other actions in places that are already unionized or sometimes strikes in places that aren't unionized, which is why I started with that Amazon wildcat action in Britain. And in that piece, what I was trying to draw out is like, this is an exciting moment, right? As a labor journalist who's been doing this for 14, 15 years now, um, this is definitely the most exciting that it's been both in the US and in Britain since I started doing this, right? And also it is way, way below where we would need to be to actually really um, shift the percentage of workers of the workforce that is unionized, right? We're still at sort of replacement levels of unionization, replacing the jobs that are being lost to deindustrialization and things like that. And just the, you know, the constant threat of union busting that's always happening. So I asked some smart people, what it would take to actually get to the kind of um, unionization wave, say, and strike waves that we saw in mid-century, and what it would take to do that in a different world of work than the big factory. Well, I think that's the the sort of the bit that's quite, I was going to say, it's hard not to say striking, but it, but it's at least, uh, it sticks out at the minute that, oh, it's, it's, it's annoying, but, but there we are, we're stuck with this sort of uh, pun whether we like it or not, the it sticks out that this bit where the Amazon workers was was so dramatic that this was a bunch of people who have no 
unless people have come into, well, I don't really know, they might have come into the workplace with some prior history of being a union or whatever. But otherwise, Amazon's notoriously anti-union. This is, these are places that are new, that have no history of prior organisation at all. And then people have immediately and pretty spontaneously in that sense gone to like a very classic form of really quite militant labour organization which is like never mind the union whatever you just kind of occupy a space and demand to see the managers uh, and, it, and it's quite dramatic to see that suddenly reproducing this way and, and then there's the more sort of formal union organization that's trying to build up around it but it's this it's exactly your point that the distance between what we're seeing now exciting as it may well be after decades right where you haven't seen anything like this happen on, a, on any kind of scale that and the sort of hysteria really in the press around a second winter of discontent and how it's back to the 1970s really and this sort of thing. I mean, it's just this this gap between perception and reality is enormous. And, and I do wonder how much of that actually affects what people are thinking about as they're trying to do these things. That I think you make the point, or somebody makes the point in your piece, that because we're carrying this memory of what used to happen, it kind of gets in the way of organising today. Yeah, Eric Loomis is a labor historian friend of mine. It was actually interesting because I had had that conversation with him for that piece before the sit-down strikes at the Amazon warehouses in Britain. And we had been talking about specifically about the sit-down strike, which was famously, right, the workers at the Flint, Michigan, um, Detroit, the outside of Detroit, right, this is sort of famous center of industrial labor in the U.S., um, they had a sit-down strike at this General Motors plant. This was a huge deal. It was um, one of the sort of cornerstones of industrial organization in the U.S., and it sparked just imitations across the country and in different industries, too, right, like workers at Woolworths, which is a um, the pre- precursor to Walmart, basically. Um, they had a sit-down strike. So, We had been saying, like, would a sit-down strike even work in an Amazon warehouse? Because the Amazon warehouse is just such a different creature to a big factory. Like, it takes up about as much space as a big factory, right, in in terms of square footage. But instead of workers all standing next to each other on an assembly line where you're, you know, maybe 10 feet away from the nearest person, um, you're walking around it alone all day. Or maybe you're standing at a thing while, like, robots bring you the stuff to pick. Um, But, like... You don't have the same amount of people that maybe it would take to shut down a big factory. But it turns out if all those people decide we're just going to go sit in the canteen and refuse to work, it still has a pretty big impact. And the the interesting thing about that, right, is that like, yeah, those, those old tactics can still work and that's great, right? Strikes are still powerful. But particularly what we're looking at now in terms of unionizing, and I'm working on a piece sort of about this next step is that we're looking at high turnover, um, which also, again, the factories used to be pretty high turnover too, but we're looking at extremely high turnover, short-term, low-wage workplaces that need to be organized. Um, We're looking at service industries that don't have, um, that the only margin to squeeze is labor, right? Because everything else sort of costs what it costs and the labor cost is the thing that you can um, squish more profits out of, right? And we're just looking at, at things like the platform economy. Um, we're looking at, you know, Uber drivers who maybe never see another Uber driver in the course of their shift. All of these things mean that we have to think about organizing in a different way. And you can get sort of stuck thinking about the old ways. If we don't think about them strategically, like, will this work? Does this actually pay off? Um, that's the challenge right now is, is to sort of, look at 
the where we are on the clock of capitalism, as my friend Dania Rajendra likes to say, and understand what the workplace looks like now, what the global forces around it look like, like now. Like it's not an accident that one of the sets of workers in the strike wave in Britain recently that's gotten some of the, the best deal is the dock workers in Liverpool, right? They got 14 to 16% pay increases. Why? Because it turns out if you shut down things coming into the country in a country that is a massive net importer, well, you've got a lot of power, right? Everybody is talking about Mick Lynch ruining Christmas, but like actually the, the port workers could really ruin Christmas. Well, that's that's a, a, a it's a very good point that, that that yourself and others have raised about the 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 presence in a in a sort of just in time economy, like we've seen over the last sort of. I mean, the pandemic was a graphic demonstration of, of what can happen here. That when you have very long supply chains, you have great trails of goods stretching all the way from you know factories in China uh, into Europe, and then back onto to trains and back onto ships and going across to Britain and in through the ports. I mean, in huge volumes. Um, there are a whole load of pinch points all the way along that that somebody can shut down if they're minded to. But but that feels to me like that's a fairly relatively traditional way of organizing that you have not, I mean, the, the ports are much fewer people employed than used to. This is the impact of containerization, automation in various forms over the last sort of 40 years, 50 years. Um, and that does give a lot of power to the people there, but it's a relatively traditional, like here we all are together on a port, that's our power. It, it's not quite the new kinds of organization you might see elsewhere that I think you've uh, written about. Yeah. And that's, and that's the challenge, right? Is that like, there's, there's a reason why besides the fact that like sexism and racism, that, that old unions are still focused in the places where they've traditionally had power. It's because they know how to have power in those places. Um, and in some cases, right, it's, it's relatively obvious again, that like the ports, if anything, have more power now than they used to precisely because, you know, Britain used to make things. <laughs> it doesn't really make things anymore. Um, so the things need to come in. And so you have actually like much more power. I mean, you know these numbers better than I do, obviously, but like you have much more power if you are the handful of workers, the, the couple hundred, five, six hundred, I think it was at the Liverpool port that it takes to run this port now that brings in 30% of what Britain imports. Um, and Felix Stowe brings in nearly half, right? Um, you have a ton of power there when like, Back in the day, you would have the shape up where you would just pull dock workers off the street. It was the original gig economy, right? Where you would just get people going down. If you want to see a demonstration of this by a guy who was a scab, but nonetheless, it's a good demonstration of this, watch the movie On the Waterfront, um, where you just get all the guys who want to work, and it was mostly guys, um, who go stand there and the managers pick the dudes that they want to work that day based on what they've got coming in and based on whether this guy has pissed you off this week. Um, and that was, that was the old school gig economy. Right. And I think that's a useful thing to think about too, is that like before these places were well organized, they were also precarious, unskilled with big inverted commas around it, um, workplaces. And that the, the thing that made them stable was that unions figured out how to wedge themselves into the process and have some power. And so it's not that it's impossible to unionize something like Uber or Deliveroo, but you've got to figure out how to change it the way they figured out how to change the shape up into a union hiring hall. And so that 
challenge, right? Where now in order to hire the workers for the day, you have to go to the union and the union says, these guys get this based on seniority, or maybe, you know, we move Jim up the list because his wife is sick or something like that, right? Um, Where you have an equitable system because the workers have figured out how to have leverage. And so, you know, I think it's always important to think about history, but it's important to think about history while analyzing the conjuncture that we're at and the industry that you're in. And so, right, Amazon, one of the things that I learned recently from somebody else's podcast is that in the Inland Empire in California, um, Amazon has such high turnover that they're actually running out of workers because there just actually aren't as many people as they maybe thought there would be. There is not actually an endless supply of people who want to do backbreaking work for not very much money. Um, and this is the thing that we saw with the, the quote unquote great resignation, which is more of a great job shift is people going, you know what, screw Amazon. I'm going to go do this instead. You know, I interviewed a woman who was a restaurant worker for a long time in Florida and in sort of very touristy areas, made really good money, was pretty good at it. But of course the pandemic shut that down and now she's a home healthcare worker and she makes less money, but it's stable and more relaxing and uses a different part of her sort of brain and emotional makeup. And she's fine with that for now, you know? And so when we're looking at these places, um, the question of high turnover really needs to be on everybody's minds. The thing that I'm thinking about, right, is that there's been a lot of attention to the Amazon labor unions win in Staten Island and the Starbucks unions wins all over the country, but none of them have a contract yet, right? And so we're, everybody is stuck in the place between winning the union election, which is a huge deal, right? Um, it's absolutely huge deal that they won this, this little upstart independent union, right? Um, won a union election at a big Amazon warehouse in New York City. Okay, but Amazon is going to do its damnedest to crush them and drive out all the workers and they've got high enough turnover anyway, you know, that like, If the average job tenure, and I looked this up in the U.S., and I would imagine it's probably similar in Britain, um, is less than four years. Average person spends less than four years at a job. That is all industries. In places like this, the average Amazon worker spends less than a year at Amazon. If it takes a year to win the union election and two more years just to get a contract, are the people who are at the end of that process going to be the same people who were so committed to winning the union election in the first place? And this is what these industries rely on, right? Is this sort of endless supply of cheap workers. And so this is the challenge that I think we have to deal with. And it's one of the reasons that sometimes you see workers just taking wildcat action like they did again at the Amazons in in Britain, Rather than going through the process of certifying a union election, and we should note that like GMB held an election for a strike ballot at an Amazon and they did not get enough votes to win it, right? Those processes are designed to make it difficult for workers to do anything. So sometimes the workers just do the thing. And that is, again, this is where we got a lot of these big powerful unionizations in the first place is is not, it was in many cases, before there was a legal framework for doing it, and you just refuse to work. Um, and you get people, you get power, you get leverage, you get all of that, um, rather than than being hamstrung by this process that is designed to hamstring you. Um, and I don't know if Rishi Sunak is, is making the same noises that Liz Truss was about making, you know, about banning strikes entirely and all of that garbage. But like, 
nobody, and I very much include Keir Starmer's labor in this process, is talking about making this process any easier, right? Um, Joe Biden, the most pro-labor president, again, big old inverted commas around that, just um, called on Congress successfully to squash the rail worker strike that we would have had over here and impose a contract on them that does not include the paid sick days that they were asking for. So like waiting for, <laughs> I want to make like a waiting for Gatto joke and I'm not going to because Beckett does not belong in here, but um, although Beckett was a comrade, he probably would have got it. Um, waiting for a slightly more friendly government to do the thing is not going to work. Um, and in fact, one of the points that I've been making repeatedly is like a powerful labor movement will actually pull politics towards it rather than the other way around. Microdose is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com. For the full episode, head over to patreon.com slash macrodose and subscribe today.